The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com events where you can get your tickets. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and you're very welcome to the Irish Times Inside Politics podcast. This is Pat Leahy. I'll be sitting in for your regular host, Hugh Linehan, for the next couple of weeks as he disports himself around the beaches of Croatia, vucking around with the Vukovars. Uh, later, I'll be talking to Lisa O'Carroll, the Guardian's Brexit correspondent, about the issue of Brexit and that European summit that's beginning in Brussels tomorrow morning. But before that, I'm joined by Simon Carswell and Sarah Barden in studio here to talk about some of the stories in the political news this morning. Sarah, yesterday's cabinet meeting approved the appointment of uh, a new Garda commissioner. Yes. Who he? Uh, His name is Drew Harris. He's currently the deputy chief constable with the police service in uh, Northern Ireland. He's been there for about, I think it's about 12 to 14 years, but he's had, he has a CV the length of one's arm. He's been involved in policing for over uh, 30 years. Um, he has a very uh, interesting past. Uh, his father was murdered in an IRA car bomb attack. His mum was also in the car, but she escaped with minor injuries. Um, he uh, he has a really strong reputation um, within Nongarda Shiokona, but also within the police service um, of Northern Ireland. He's seen as sort of a quiet individual, but willing to work with um, willing to work with anyone who brings him to the right result. People domestically would probably um, be more interested to know that he was Deputy Chief Constable when uh, Gerry Adams was arrested in 2014 in connection with the uh, disappearance and the abduction of Jean McConville. Um, and so I think his, his relationship now with the Sinn Féin party would probably be very much under the... Um, under the spotlight. Yeah, some questions about that in a lot of the coverage uh, this morning as to how his relationship with Sinn Féin will be. It seems to have been pretty testy in the north. 
Yeah, he was he was the person who was resented for the arrest of um, of Jerry Adams in 2014. But also when he was uh, applying for the position of deputy chief constable, uh, Katrina Ruan uh, resigned from the board because she felt that the interview process was compromised. And Did she she didn't explain what she meant by that. No, not necessarily. And then he went on to get the job, and you know, there's been no question marks raised over him since. And actually, in the statement that was released by Sinn Fein yesterday, they're very careful with their wording. Is they welcome his appointment? they'll hold him to account um, I suppose don't reference that past history with uh, Mr Harris um, in terms of I suppose now what he himself faces is I suppose an organisation whose morale is at you know is on the floor um, wh- who, where there is little or no public confidence in the organisation of Angarda Shiyakona and he faces a really difficult task to bring the people and the force along with him it is expected he'll bring his own team um, with him so it'll be interesting to see will he bring many from the PSNI or, will or whether he will hire external uh, persons and I think that will be a, so- a source of concern uh, within for many within uh, Angarda Shiyakona yeah, It will be a huge culture change for the guard Simon, you come from a reasonably law-abiding family. Uh, what's your view on this? Um, my family would be thrilled with the appointment, no doubt. Um, yeah, I think it was important that there had to be a big statement made with this appointment, and I think uh, that big statement was made with the appointment of an outsider. I am sure there'll be ructions within the ranks of Ngarda Siakona at the uh, arrival of an outsider, and particularly from Northern Ireland. But I think his track record shows that he has good credentials and he's a good choice. But as I say, that statement of bringing in someone from outside, given what the guards has been through in the last decade or more, I think it needed uh, someone like that, someone with a fresh set of eyes to look at the reforms, the long needed reforms that had to be and should be introduced. Within but it's the not project. so much the institutional and kind of organisational or architectural reforms in, uh, in, in in the Gardaí that are needed. It's a, it's a change of culture, isn't it? Change of culture, but also uh, to bring back some more confidence in the Guards, given what's happened. I mean, the, the McCabe revelations over the last few years um, has really rocked the Gardaí Shia to its core, as indeed uh, the Department of Justice. So I think that needed, that culture needed to be broken. And I think this appointment... Um, while it will, there will be reservations amongst some uh, uh, ranking, high-ranking Gardaí, I think it's a big statement and an important one. Sarah, I remember, sorry, you were going to say... No, I was just going to say, I mean, they, they kind of need that culture shock than which his appointment will bring. Um, you know, over the last number of years, we've had a lot of oversight and a lot more accountability and transparency within Angarda Shia than we've ever seen before. But the culture still remains and it's one a culture of self-preservation as to when you know, when the criticism is coming, they all put up their shield and, you know, bat against it rather than address it and, and, and try and progress from it. And I think Drew Harris will will a- attempt to address that when Donal O'Coolon was appointed, when Noreen O'Sullivan resigned. And in a way, I always felt like Noreen O'Sullivan was doomed from the beginning when she took over as Garda Commissioner because she was so associated with Martin Callanan and, you know, that infamous PAC meeting where she sat beside him, as he called the whistleblowers, uh, Morris McCabe and John Wilson, disgusting. She was there right beside him. And so she was always somewhat tainted and she wasn't really given a fair hearing by anybody in uh, the media and she certainly wasn't given any, a fair hearing by anyone within Leinster House. And then Donal O'Coolan came in and he was a guards guard and the guards, you know, they liked him, but he steadied the ship. Um, uh, but as the Garda Representative Association said to Conor Lally, you know, it's like the ship has been without a captain for quite some time. And I think 
Drew Harris now offers them an opportunity to steer them in the policing in the right direction. But I do think there will be a lot of people within Angarda Siakana who will question whether it's right or appropriate to have an outsider overseeing Ireland's national security. Well, this is this is one thing. I seem to remember, I think it was Michael McDougall uh, talking about this, perhaps when he was Justice Minister, when the question of an outside appointment uh, came up. And his, um, probably would have been long after he was Justice Minister now that I think of it, but his view was that it would be inappropriate to have somebody, a British national uh, or, or, or another foreign national in charge of Ireland's state security. And one of the things that's been said about uh, Mr. Harris's appointment, that he would have worked very closely with MI5 in the North. I think that's part of Sinn Féin's nervousness about it. Were you hearing anything in government that suggested that concerns along those regards yesterday? Uh, not necessarily, but I do think that they are—they're kind of holding off until Kathleen O'Toole, the commission, and the f- uh, the chair of the commission on the future of policing's report comes in. But they don't expect—you know—they're they're looking at uh, separating policing and security as part of the commission on the future of policing's work. But they don't expect that separation to come. So in a way, I think people are reluctant to maybe express that criticism or express that concern until those matters have been identified. The Taoiseach was asked about it um, at the press conference yesterday and he said that um, Mr Harris would be loyal to the police service and loyal to the state. Um, on his um, on his appointment, he'll have to swear an oath under the Garda Síochána Act. He is a British citizen. He has dual British and Irish citizenship. He is applying for an Irish passport at present. So I think he himself is trying to address the concerns that many will have. But, you know, I th- think people will feel a little bit nervous. Um, and I think upon his appointment, he'll have to address those concerns. Yesterday, he didn't answer any media questions. So I think, you know, when September comes, he'll have to address those concerns outright. OK, the only other big news out of yesterday was that Fianna Fáil have, as I think you may have reported, they were about to do last weekend, have decided to duck out of the presidential election for the second time in a row, Michal Martin uh, said that, uh, consulted, as uh, as they say, with his parliamentary party and told them that they weren't yeah. going to back, uh, they weren't going to field a presidential candidate. And interestingly, I think that means that Fianna Fáil councillors will be will be barred from supporting the candidature of anyone who looks for a local uh, nomination from a local authority on which they sit. It does. uh, I've clarified that last night. It's from from top to toe within Fianna Fáil. So everybody will be um, bound by the party decision to support President Michael D. Higgins. It's a significant fillip to to Michael D. Higgins if, as we all assume, he's about to announce that he's uh, going to run for a second term. Have a look. I mean, the dogs on the street know that Michael D. Higgins is looking for a second term. I mean, you just had to see him. He was in Stony Batter on Sunday. I don't live too far away and I saw him and he was walking. He must have shook every person's hand in the place. There is no doubt that Michael D. Higgins is seeking a second term. And I think Fianna Fáil were incredibly smart to get out of the traps nice and early to declare their support for Michael D. Higgins, who is, you know, overwhelmingly popular with the majority of of the public. And they've come out and kind of owned the decision for themselves and, I suppose, stopped what potentially could uh, have occurred, whereby you had people like Senator Mark Daly, who was, you know, suggesting that he might go for the presidency. Um, You had people like Gerald Crockwell, the independent senator, tapping up Fianna Fáil, 
senators in particular, but also Fianna Fáil councillors looking for support. So Mial Martin just, I suppose, just put it to bed. But it's interesting, there was no actually, he announced it at the Parliamentary Party. He actually had made, had made the decision two weeks prior and a cost uh, came, was a significant factor rather than, you know, I think... He, he portrayed because it in one way, but, you know, we're supportive of Michael D. Higgins and I think that's the public image of which they will want to articulate. But cost played a, a very significant factor. Why would Fianna Fáil want to fight a presidential election when a general election is around the corner? I think the only thing that you'd be thinking about with a second Michael D. term is is not will he run or would he get it? He certainly would get it and he's, he's very popular and he certainly wants it. But whether he's up for it, I guess, given all the rigours of travel that are required if you're off... You mean whether he's physically up for it? Yes. Would you like to see his medical records and uh, see what he have to do in the United States? Well, I was be. going to say, having covered him extensively uh, on his visits to the United States and to Did Australia... you go to Australia with Yeah, him? last yeah. October, anyone who'd have any doubts about his kind of physical ability to do the job would be, uh, would be reassured by seeing his energy when he meets people and he's certainly one of those uh, former politicians who are energised when they meet uh, members of the public and he certainly is more than enthusiastic uh, to continue doing the job and also he's he's continuing his kind of ethical commemoration and the uh, ethical economy he's talking about and he has been for the last six, seven years is to basically uh, find find economists and encourage economists to have heart I I think is probably the shorthand to to describe it but he he would be president in the second term covering I guess the trickiest of the centenary commemorations the civil war and he doesn't come from a Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael background obviously as a former Labour uh, politician and, and minister but also he has uh, I've heard him say a couple, a couple of times and I've heard him um, dr- uh, rehearse a couple of the lines that he's obviously going to be saying when that uh, centenary comes around talking about family members who are on different sides of the civil war divide and so he has I think in his head got his own backstory ready to wheel out at that time and uh, I think he has absolutely been thinking about it for some time and he's no doubt about that he wants it. Final word to you Sarah. Is Michael D beatable? Well I'll probably just quote a a government minister when this was discussed at Cabinet. Um, The only person who would come within an ass's roar of beating Michael D Higgins would be Daniel O'Donnell. And he can't run as a Fianna Fáil candidate if Daniel were to run uh, now. So which party would, would want to, uh, to to recruit Daniel, do you think? Well, don't be giving Sinn Féin ideas now, Simon. <laughs> Sinn Féin, OK. <laughs> OK, well, we'll leave that there. You two are staying with me. And coming up, I'll be talking to Lisa O'Carroll, The Guardian's Brexit correspondent. Simon, you were due to uh, travel with me to Brussels for the summit uh, summit taking place tomorrow, but you've uh, pulled out. You got a better offer. Uh, yes. Well, it's turned out that the European Council, which was supposed to be the crunch summit and the Brexit talks, or the, net, the latest, uh, our upcoming uh, crunch summit is not going to be so crunch. What's the opposite of crunch? I don't know, calm or, or irrelevant. Um, so it was, it was billed as this very important meeting to figure out exactly how... London and Brussels will come up with some plan or some the latest iteration of how they would avoid a hard border post-Brexit on the island of Ireland. The problem is, is that after the March summit, there was this agreement reached that, yes, there has to be a legal text around what the backstop would be. And that was great. That was uh, uh, lauded by everyone involved. And yet in the last three months, nothing really has been done in that. The British have come up with their own proposal, but that's been rejected by Brussels. So really what we were hoping for and what particularly what the Irish government were hoping for was this kind of hard legal text. And the legal text being if in the morning we were to have, if if the UK were to leave the EU, we would actually have this operable kind of plan of action of how you would operate 
um, the backstop. And that is essentially keeping Northern Ireland in, under European Union economic rules, essentially maintaining the status quo, keeping Northern Ireland within the customs union and the single market. But we had no detail on that. So it's been kicked back now. And The, the, uh, the Irish government ministers, particularly the Taoiseach and the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Simon Coveney, spent a lot of this, this last three months saying that we needed to have substantial progress or significant progress or are the, are the talks were in danger of grinding to a halt. What happened to all that? Well, the significant progress they were hoping for hasn't materialised and uh, all of the warnings that were given after March and in the run-up in the last two, two to three months is we need to see significant progress. Nothing's come of that. So uh, there's been much talk now about it's now going back to the October summit, the October European Council, and even suggestions that it could inch into November, December, which is getting awfully close to the formal date when the UK leaves the EU at the end of March 2019. Uh, and you need that time to allow the, both the European Parliament and the UK Parliament to ratify whatever withdrawal agreement uh, is agreed. The problem is, is that, and this has been stated by Michel Barnier, it's been stated at length by uh, our own government, by the Taoiseach and by the Taunashta, that there can be no withdrawal agreement unless there is a backstop in it. So we don't have a backstop, so we won't have a withdrawal agreement. So really, the prospect of there being no deal on Brexit and the UK crashing out of the European Union and this cliff-edge Brexit that is terrifying businesses and should be terrifying others as well is becoming more and more real. Lisa, um, are we any closer to knowing? One of, one of the great uncertainties thus far and one of the reasons it seems to me for the lack of progress is the inability of the British government to define exactly what it is and put that into concrete terms that can be negotiated uh, what, what it wants when, uh, when it leaves the European Union, the exact shape of that withdrawal agreement and the contents of the withdrawal agreement and of the future relationship. Are we any closer now to having a sense of that than we were, say, at the time of the last summit in March? Well, Pat, what you've just described um, goes to the heart of the issue, um, a division in the Tory party in relation to um, Europe that goes back to, um, you, you know, some people say it goes back 100 years, but it's definitely defined the modern um, Conservative Party right through from um, the the creation of the EEC in 1973. So to think that a referendum, as we know, you know, something that wasn't really defined um, as, as a question, but to think that a referendum over Europe was going to settle this division at the heart of the Tory party, um, it was delusional. And I think the referendum has just exacerbated divisions that were there, but not, but were not, um, were not on the surface um, and were managed. So I think what we're looking at here, Theresa May has got a very weak government. It's a divided cabinet, a divided between a majority of soft Brexiters and um, hard Brexiters, with a minority of about 70 MPs who um, uh, include the likes of Jacob Rees-Mogg and Boris Johnson and Michael Gove, who we haven't heard a lot about because he could be on other uh, sort of political manoeuvres in relation to a premiership bid. Um, so the division is there, and I think the thinking here is that Theresa May is a, is a very weak prime minister. However, what she's doing is kicking the can down the road so much so that it's in the direction of a fudge of a soft Brexit. And yes, this may not be attainable by October. Yes, it might move to the, the summit when the council leaders meet again in early December. Um, but the danger for her is whether, um, I don't think she'll, you know, the hard Brexit, Brexiters will win the day, but I think the danger 
um, in Britain is that they what they may have is the numbers to um, to unseat her coronal leadership elections. And, uh, as and yet, what then? Is, is, I wonder, is, is, is that fought between the camps? I mean, the argument for keeping her there always, it has seemed to me, is, uh, is that the civil war that would ensue by taking her out from either mm. camp's side would be so destructive as to hand power to the Labour Party. Well, this is it. So, I mean, we are, we are lurching from, you know, day to day, week to week to see how whatever fudge um, comes up goes down in, in the, the hard Brexit camp. And the next crunch point, of course, will be next week when she is uh, uh, having another session out in Chequers on Thursday and Friday, we believe. Um, we are expecting the white paper, um, late as it is, um, to be published on Monday week, the 9th of July. Um, I'm hearing from sources that that is very general, very vague in the same way as um, all papers that have gone to um, Brussels so far have been. I, I don't think it's going to be anything groundbreaking or it's going to produce a breakthrough. But then again, I was speaking to some journalists, political editors um, at a session uh, with the car manufacturing industry yesterday who think there may well be you know, she keeps her cards so close to her chest that really this is the Theresa May and Ollie Robbins show. But there may well be a surprise this week um, in Brussels that, that she may pull something out of the hat. I'm not so sure, but, you know, the it's difficult to predict what's going on. Business in the UK, and we see warnings from BMW that UK plants will close if Brexit disrupts their border supply uh, or their, their, uh, their supply chains across the border uh, in, in the FT today. A business seems to be making its voice uh, heard a little more in, uh, in, in the UK now. Is that pushing Theresa May, do you think, uh, towards a softer Brexit? There's a lot of chat about this white, the forthcoming white paper, that it will be single market for, it, it would propose keeping Britain in the single market for goods. That's cherry picking, however, isn't it? Um, which is something that the, 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 the European... You know, the European Council or European uh, Commission have already rejected you can't be in single market without accepting the, the four freedoms, which include includes freedom of movement of people, um, which the British government has said is a, is a red line. Um, on, on the business side, uh, yes, business has become more vocal very late in the day. Business has been extremely reluctant to, to speak out. And I interviewed the former governor of the, the Square Mile, the city of um, London, uh, which accounts for all financial services last week. And he pointed out that the majority of banks have already moved, our financial services asset managers in Dublin, in relation to Dublin, have already moved some operations to Dublin, Luxembourg, Frankfurt, Amsterdam, but they're not announcing it as a Brexit-related deal. And he said they will never announce it as a Brexit-related deal. They'll do it. The ship has already, already sailed they have to legally be prepared for um, uh, Brexit days on the 30th of March next year. They have to be able to operate across Europe. Um, so I think there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes that, that journalists aren't getting to hear about and therefore the public aren't getting to hear about. <clears throat> and there's still a sense of denial, for instance, up in North Wales, which is a poor area with little employment, but it has <clears throat> um, a really, really significant um, Airbus um, factory which produces wings for Airbus. And we sent a journalist up there last Friday when Airbus also warned that it would move. And we believe it would move to the north of France. Um, and you have people who are working there and who voted Brexit, who said they don't regret voting for Brexit, so they don't make the connection between their vote and their job. It's not a terribly difficult connection to make. 
No, I, the one thing is, I think the points that Lisa's making really point to the fact that business has to go ahead and make decisions where there is a political vacuum and there's no decision being made and what life is going to be like for business post-Brexit and a lot of the businesses have already made those contingency plans this talk of planning for the worst this is this is them planning for the worst and I think the, the growing volume of businesses that Lisa refers to as well like you know the likes of BMW uh, saying they're having to they're going to be forced to close UK plants if the company cannot quickly and reliably import components from Europe post-Brexit you have Airbus warning of severe negative uh, consequences and may be forced to leave the UK after Brexit these are thousands of jobs in key areas where rely on uh, this kind of employment in parts of the UK and as Lisa points out places like where Nissan has Sunderland Sunderland voted 61% for Brexit so these are huge risks for uh, the British government and I think where there's a lack of of political um, decision making business is going to increase that pressure so I think you're going to see business come out more and more I think what's interesting is the political reaction to some of the warnings from business where you have the likes of the business secretary Greg Clark saying the UK must take an act on the advice of business and yet you have the health secretary Jeremy Hunt saying uh, comments by Airbus are completely appropriate and Boris Johnson going even further saying privately to, to F business can we use the F word on the podcast I don't know. fire ahead uh, fuck business so he's saying that yeah the Lord is, save us <laughs> and so the point that's been made is like this is being branded as scaremongering and that's fine you can make that argument when the economy is still growing so that's why uh, a lot of these warnings aren't causing alarm I think as they should be among certain politicians and particularly amongst the hard Brexiteers but while the can is continuing to be kicked down the road, business needs to be making these decisions and needs to plan for a cliff edge Brexit. Well, as somebody, as some, as somebody here said, the, um, the chief executive of the Society of Motor Manufacturers and Traders, he said, you know, the car businesses won't move overnight. They won't close down. No business will close down overnight. Um, most of them want to stay. They care about their employers, but it's a death by a thousand cuts. While there's uncertainty, it's, an, in, 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 uh, it's impossible to make confident investment. And you've got a BMW's got 30 plants around the world um, and they can easily shift uh, production of a part of a car or Ford, which makes engines in the UK. They can shift stuff around. Um, not easily done. And in the car business, we're talking business cycles of five to 10 years. Um, but it, what, what the car industry is saying yesterday, BMW is saying yesterday, is that they, they, they're making critical decisions on investment for a next cycle of investment in August. They need to know by August what the Brexit strategy is. But they're not going to know... They're not what, going to They're not know. going to know by August. One of the difficulties in kicking the can down the road is that's all very fine if you don't have a rigid deadline someplace in the middle distance. But this process does because the UK is going to leave legally. The, with, the EU withdrawal bill has been passed. It's going to leave uh, next March. And, you know, so if the can can be kicked down the road, it can't be kicked... That's that's a wall in the middle of the road, to extend the metaphor well, a bit. Well, there, there are suggestions this morning, even Tony, Tony Blair um, uh, vocalising them today, saying that, you know, that the process should be um, uh, put back. John Bruton has made this suggestion as well, that the, yeah. uh, that, that, that the Brexit that date, the Article be 50 moved. process, could be, could be extended. The difficulty with that, of course, is European elections are due next year Sam yeah. and there's budget planning as well for the European Union as well and the European Commission is so there's all sorts of complications around whether you can shift the Article 50 date I also think the the, the idea of moving the formal date uh, of Brexit is going to cause problems for the hard Brexiteers they want out and 
I think there will actually be some movement. I know it's precarious right now and it will be right up until March for the, for the next nine months negotiations. But I just wonder, it, would that be a tipping point once they're out and once they know they're out and they've got their Brexit? Will they then soften position on some issues like trade and soften some uh, issues? Like, would they go then for a, a soft Brexit? The challenge is this is a real sequ- this is a sequencing problem. The entire Brexit negotiations are a sequencing problem. Like, you had Boris Johnson coming to Dublin last November saying the border is best dealt with in the context of trade relations and trade negotiations. And you have the European Union of Brussels and Dublin saying, no, we can't do that. We can't get to that point. You've got to do it first. So we've never actually solved that sequencing problem. And I just wonder that if, if the hard Brexiteers get their Brexit come March 2019, would you then see an opening up and, and maybe uh, some more constructive negotiations? Well, it's, it's, it's a problem of substance as well as of choreography. And this, this, the, the, the missing bit in the, in the substantial negotiation is what Britain actually wants out of that, what it wants the future relationship to be and what it's prepared to do. I mean, if these suggestions about uh, about the white paper come to pass, they're essentially they're talking about a single market for goods. Do you think, Simon, that the EU's that the EU's opposition to cherry picking, uh, as as it has been told, is a negotiating position, or do you think it's an absolute red line? I think it's an absolute red line from the European Union. They don't want to damage the integrity of the single market or the customs union. I mean, Barnier has made that very clear. He said that last week in his speech. You know, you, 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 you can't have all of the benefits. You can't pretend you're an EU member and not have, not sign up to the rules. You can't do that. That's having the cake and eat it. That's cakeism. Whatever way you want to put it, that's the way they view it. And it's not possible. Cake has some cherries. Yes, I think. exactly. Yes, it's so a cherry cake, cherry cake, cherry picking, picking cherries off the cake. So you can't, you can't do that. That's the view of the European Union. You just can't go there. Uh, and I think actually, from an Irish perspective, and this hasn't been said very much, is that we like cherry picking would be really damaging from an Irish perspective as would well. It though? Would well, it, it, would it not well, suit us? To allow the British to pick some cherries to uh, to maintain an open border and to main, maintain east-west trade as well. No, well, if you look at two things, I'll give you two examples. So the pharmaceutical industry, where if the UK had their own rules and weren't applying the same rules that would be applying to Irish companies, then they can benefit from ar- from arbitrage. They can play the regulations and offer greater benefits to pharmaceutical companies moving into the UK that would put them in direct competition with our own industry. And also state aid issues. Like where our hands are tied in terms of how we can support companies. If the UK hadn't uh, got some of the benefits of the single market but none of the, be- none of the restrictions around state aid, that would uh, look, pharmaceutical companies here would go, well, hang on a second, we can get a much better deal if we move to the UK based on uh, the cherry picking that the UK have managed to achieve. So I think we have to be very careful. It was suggested to me that there's two options for the Irish. It's we either have the UK as close as possible to us uh, in terms of being in the single market and being in the customs union or push them as far away as possible so that you either you're on a level playing field with them or you have uh, you, you, you basically push them off the playing field so they can't actually compete with you. Lisa, is the EU's opposition to picking the cherries off the cake, as uh, Simon has described it, uh, while eating the cake, presumably. Um, is, is, is that fully appreciated or is it understood? Reading a lot of the UK media, the sense I get is that that is viewed as something that the UK, UK will, or that the EU rather, will cave on in the course of negotiations, particularly as we approach the 11th hour in the autumn. Yeah, I totally agree. And I agree with Simon. Um, it's the, the rules based system is absolute heart and uh, it's an it's an unshiftable heart of um, the EU. I, I have heard it said by, by people in Brussels that if you strip away everything, all the federalism in relation to 
services, uh, um, uh, security, if you strip away everything, um, the rules in relation to the single market would be enough to keep the, the, um, the EU going. And I think that, that um, it is an absolute red line to say they won't be moving. In relation to how it's characterised here, I think you're absolutely right. But they don't see it in the detail. The British don't see the detail of the red lines as the EU single market. I think people here, there's a lot of Brexit fatigue and they would, that, that would be characterised as bullying by the EU, um, particularly by the hard Brexiteers. And what's interesting here is that I, there are surveys which show that, that um, some people think actually Britain's already left the EU and they're going, what, why are we still talking about this? Um, uh, so it is, again, a, a complete disconnect between what's going on in the, the very small bubble of Westminster Village and the rest of the country. Okay, thanks, uh, Lisa and Simon. I'm, I'm going to leave uh, the last word with this to Sarah, who follows every twist and turn of um, uh, of, of the Brexit saga uh, in minute detail. Um, reports this morning suggest, uh, Sarah, that the Taoiseach uh, is going to embark on a diplomatic offensive uh, across the EU over the summer, no lying on a beach in the south of Spain for him. Uh, he'll be on the government jet sweating his way around European capitals to put Ireland's case in advance of the autumn negotiations. Um, how do you rate the Taoiseach's diplomatic skills? Uh, fairly good, in fairness to him. Um, I think you know, it's, it's quite wise to use the break in the dull uh, in the dull term to um, go around and meet various European leaders. It's actually something that his, his predecessor did quite often and um, the current Taoiseach has, has travelled quite a lot since taking office. But I think given the crunch time in which we're approaching with regards to the Brexit talks, it's, it would be, uh, you know, it's quite, it would have, been, would have been remiss had he not used the opportunity to avail of as much support for Ireland as he possibly can. I think there's sort of a dawning on the Irish government now in the last number of weeks, um, particularly in the last week, that, a, you know, there may not be a deal on Brexit. It's like they were shutting their eyes, turning their heads to the possibility that there may not, there may be no deal. They believed it's probably one of um, Simon Coveney's greatest weaknesses that he actually believes what people tell him. Uh, and uh, he's now suddenly coming to realise that you know, politics plays its part, you know, in, in European politics as much as it plays its part. Uh, in domestic politics and now we're only starting to realise that possibly we may have no deal, we may have a hard Brexit and what a hard Brexit would probably mean a hard border and it seems according to reports from the Taoiseach's commentary in the Dáil yesterday um, that they're only start, now starting to make contingency plans for the possibility of something uh, that they hadn't already accounted for. They seem to have had one option in their head which is no border between the Republic and, and the North and now they're starting to realise that that may not possi- be possible under um, under the current situation. And now they're starting to plan. And I, I just think we're, we're we're caught completely on the back foot. We're in a race against time. Leo's going across uh, Europe now to try and gain as much support for the Ireland, Irish position as possible. But in reality, as Simon said in his contribution, you know, the, the timing is so important here. And I feel like the Irish government just doesn't necessarily... It hasn't necessarily got to grips with the realities of what's potentially about to happen. And, and I think the more the border issue gets pushed out as well, the more the Taoiseach has to go out and talk in European capitals because I think the main concern for us would be 
is the border as a priority starts falling down the agenda as other issues like trade, other issues like um, future relations, security uh, in the post-EU-UK world, that the Taoiseach needs to go out and do more. I mean, they've been doing it quite extensively and effectively for the last six to nine months anyway, but this seems to be an intensification of that and that's down to, directly down to the fact that they're fearful about the border who starts uh, falling off the agenda for but, other European countries. This is the situation that the Irish government is now heading into is the one that they warned against from the word go that the North goes into the mix with everything yeah. at five to midnight uh, in, in the autumn. And now they're in that position despite the fact that they said for 18 months back that that was the situation they wanted yeah, to avoid. There was a little bit of a good cop, bad cop thing going on between the Taoiseach and the Taunashtar. Like even in March, the, t- the Taoiseach was saying... Which was which? Uh, well, I would say the Taoiseach was the bad cop in this because the teacher was naturally uh, pessimistic about it. He said that uh, he said at the European Council in March, he said he'd rather have a uh, the right deal in October rather than a deal in June whereas the Taunish to Simon Coveney was saying you know we really need significant progress and then eventually we had the Taoiseach coming around to that so it was always kind of a little bit well hang on our ambiguity there between the two what's going on and I, so we, it gave a sense that Leo was trying to create political cover that if it did slip to October as it has now slipped to October that he would have that in case there was some uh, he was criticised over the handling of it so I think there is a little bit of pessimism on the Taoiseach's part and it's a huge concern as I say they need to get out and they need to keep the border issue uh, front and centre uh, as they visit various... Is it pessimism though or just foolishness on the Taoiseach's behalf? Because as you said, he set, the government set a deadline initially of June. Now they've moved to October. Now there was potentially a discussion that it could move back to November. And it seems that every time that the Taoiseach is asked about this, he sees a slippage in the situation. And the more that he sees a slippage in the situation, the harder it's going to be for Ireland to get the outcome that it that it desires. To put a counter view, I think we've got to remember that um, that Ireland uh, is a fully paid up member of the European um, Union, Britain is not, that it is a past master at negotiations, um, you know, has huge experience in, in um, negotiations and is, is well placed and well liked in Europe. And you've got to, to remember that Ireland was extremely vocal on the border issue, got it uh, uh, taken as one of the top three priorities in the first phase of negotiations. Um, didn't get what it wanted in March. But then there was a decided period of, of quiet between March and now to allow the British to get on with um, formalising their own position. And I think there's a lot going on behind the scenes that we don't know about. Um, you've got the likes of John Bruton with the channels to the EU. Uh, we've got a, a very big presence in Europe. We've got a big presence in London. Um, we are very, very active. And I think, don't discount that. No, I think um, right. there obviously is a lot going on within behind the scenes of the British government. But what Ireland, the Irish government has done is take a step back and allow the British government to tear itself apart. And it hasn't made any plans no, but I think that for... Was, I, I, think, I, I think that was, uh, that, that's deliberate. I think the Euro- Europe and Britain wanted Ireland to butt out um, uh, and to allow Britain the space um, to get on with formulating its own position, which it has yet to do. Um, and I think you would find that Drakkar and Coveney would have been chomping at the bit to say things, but have actually been holding their tongue. Which is not in either man's nature, I think. But, 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 also, <laughs> but the rhetoric has been increasing as well, though, in the last couple of weeks as well. You have Leo saying, it's not my job to help Theresa May. Coveney saying, you know, accusing Britain of revisionism and what they'd agreed on the border uh, already. So... I think you're right, Lisa. I think they have held back. But, you know, this political psychodrama is still playing out in Westminster and hasn't been resolved yet. So I just, I, I'm just wondering how wise some of the rhetoric is in the run-up to this June Council, whether there should be some more constructive uh, soundings from the Irish government. 
Well, that summit begins in Brussels tomorrow and we shall have more enthralling Brexit updates for you in the near future. Uh, My thank you to Sarah and to Simon for joining me here this morning and to Lisa on the phone. Uh, You can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and you can always find us on irishtimes.com. This is Pat Leahy and I shall speak to you again next week.